On April 13th, AMA President Dr. Susan Bailey sat down with Dr. Peter Marks of the FDA to discuss the most up-to-date information on COVID-19 vaccines. Their discussion covered the most recent developments, including the halted distribution of the J&J vaccine. You're listening to Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association. Here are Drs. Bailey and Marks. I thank you for joining us today for the latest in our popular What Physicians Need to Know webinar series. We received news that the U.S. has called for an immediate pause in administering the Johnson & Johnson single-shot coronavirus vaccine over concerns about a rare blood clotting disorder that has affected at least six women. According to news reports, one woman has died as a result of the blood clotting and another is hospitalized in critical condition. Now, of course, it should be noted that nearly 7 million people in the United States have already received the Johnson & Johnson shot, according to the CDC, and that another 9 million doses of the vaccine have already been shipped to states. These events are occurring at an anxious moment in our fight against COVID-19. Distribution of the other authorized vaccines is still occurring at a remarkable pace, And yet there are growing concerns about surges of the disease in Michigan and the upper Midwest and a possible fourth wave of this pandemic. We also continue to face barriers to widespread vaccine adoption in all communities. Yet still we know safe and effective vaccines are the most important tool we have to defeat this virus. Joining me once again today to talk about these developments and to answer our questions about the Johnson & Johnson shot and all of the vaccines currently in use and maybe some that are coming is Dr. Peter Marks, director of the FDA's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. He's also board certified in internal medicine, hematology and medical oncology and served as chief clinical officer of Smilo Cancer Hospital in New Haven before joining the FDA in 2012 as the center's deputy director. In his current role as director, he and his team are tasked with ensuring that the COVID-19 vaccines that ultimately reach the public are both safe and effective, and that they have undergone a rigorous evidence-based and transparent process. So he is the perfect person to help us make sense of today's news and to talk about the safety and efficacy of all FDA authorized vaccines for COVID-19. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Peter Marks. Thanks so much, Dr. Bailey. I'll talk a little bit about accelerating vaccine development, talk about the three emergency use authorized vaccines, um, and we'll touch upon uh, the events of the past 24 hours. Uh, talk about COVID-19 variants and uh, vaccines and how we may address those. So as everyone knows, we have uh, moved traditional vaccine development forward and ended up with uh, COVID-19 vaccines in under a year, not by cutting any corners, uh, but by uh, removing dead space, white space uh, between phases of vaccine development and by doing something uh, that was not generally done in order to Uh, save resources, and that is to manufacture at risk while uh, clinical studies were undergoing. Um, So what we've been lucky enough to have uh, to date are three um, emergency use authorized vaccines uh, that have been developed and through very large clinical trials, trials of a normal size that we would expect for a vaccine development program um, uh, that have essentially met our standards for emergency use authorization 
uh, and which have met standards which are nearing those uh, for a, a biologics license application. When we think about vaccine development, we really think about things very carefully, manufacturing quality, and some may be aware that there have been issues and concerns raised about that, but this is something FDA takes very, very seriously. Um, it's really at the heart of why uh, the precursor to the Center of Biologics was established. Uh, and obviously we look at the safety efficacy and very importantly, when we have to put forward vaccines uh, in a relatively rapid manner, like we did this time, um, we use post-marketing surveillance. We do that for all vaccines, um, but it takes on a particular relevance here uh, when we don't have as long safety follow-up for the vaccines. Um, what we've done to accelerate the process of vaccine development has included giving manufacturers clear guidance on what we expect. Um, we've been allowing them to have regular conversations with us. Um, we've had this collapsing of clinical trials into either a phase one, two, two, three, or a phase one, two, three. They've been manufacturing product as risk, uh, as I've noted before. And we've been using the emergency use authorization pathway to facilitate availability. We made clear what we were doing in two guidance documents, one put out in June of 2020, the other in October 2020, and they outline what our expectations are here um, for both uh, efficacy and for safety follow-up. Really the key part of this has been we've wanted to see vaccines that would have at least 50% efficacy over placebo with a lower bound uh, of the 95% confidence interval that was greater than 30%. What that actually did was it drove the size of the trials um, to be relatively large studies involving usually 15 to 20,000 people in each of the uh, arms. Uh, uh, that gives us a very nice safety data set as well as uh, the kind of efficacy information we want to see. Um, and we also asked for a minimum median of two months follow-up following the final uh, vaccination of a series. And that's because most adverse events with vaccines appear within the first 42 days after vaccination. We also said that we would bring all of these uh, new emergency use authorization requests for new vaccine entities to the uh, Vaccines and Related <coughs> Biologics uh, Advisory Committee uh, meeting. And uh, that has allowed an open discussion uh, of these vaccines. Uh, we've also posted the materials and actually our decisional memos um, uh, uh, to the extent that um, uh, we have our clinical memos there posted in, an un, in, a, in a minimally or unredacted fashion. Um, and the whole, the whole point here is that in undertaking our emergency use authorization, we kept in mind what we normally do for a biologics license application, which is normally under the Public Health Service Act and the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, we use a standard that there has to be substantial evidence of efficacy from adequate and well-controlled trials. Now for an emergency use authorization, we are not required to use that standard. Congress deliberately allowed us some leeway here because it was known that potentially life-saving medical products might not have that level of evidence and yet might still bring benefit. And so the standard is that products may be effective and their known and potential benefits have to outweigh their known and potential risks. Ultimately though, uh, because we want the public to have confidence in the vaccines that we deployed, we made the standard here 
and it's articulated in our October guidance, that the vaccines would have to demonstrate clear and compelling efficacy from large, well-designed phase three clinical trials, that there would have to be a careful evaluation of their quality, safety, and efficacy, that we'd have the public advisory committee meeting process, and that we would undertake enhanced post-deployment surveillance. Now, the uh, vaccine uh, uh, and blood, uh, biologic blood products advisory committee has been an important element in this, and I think they've helped us um, have uh, these open discussions. Uh, people may know that then there's also another process that takes place after we give something an emergency use authorization, which is the advisory committee on immunization practices of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, then holds a meeting. So let's just quickly go through what we have for uh, COVID-19 vaccines. So just to be sure that everyone is on the same page, although we oftentimes talk about uh, our uh, COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, which have all, all of the six that are currently leading in the development process in the United States are against the spike protein. There are other targets on the surface of coronavirus, uh, including the uh, nucleoprotein. And one can also make whole killed virus vaccines. Our advanced candidates uh, in the United States include the mRNA vaccines, uh, non-replicating viral vectors, and the protein subunits. So we, we, we're aware of what's been given emergency use authorization here. We had not yet um, uh, uh, issued emergency use authorization for the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine, uh, but it is relevant um, because some of the adverse effects that have been seen in uh, the deployment in Europe and the United Kingdom are potentially relevant for Janssen, as we'll talk about in a little bit. All of these vaccines have been studied in large trials. Um, uh, you can see the, the total number of patients in these different trials with a, uh, a, a randomization uh, that is led to 15 to 20,000 people per arm. Um, They've had a good distribution uh, uh, across different um, uh, racial and ethnic groups and including uh, uh, enrolling a fair number of older people. You'll notice the reason why uh, the Janssen vaccine has a higher percentage of black or African-American individuals is because it was conducted in part in South Africa. Um, so they do have some actual clinical data uh, with the South African variant. Um, uh, the vaccine efficacy in phase three the most important top line message is that for all of these vaccines, they prevented hospitalization and death uh, about equally well. Um, now, there were some differences in the primary efficacy against all forms of COVID-19, uh, but between Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, and Moderna, they're essentially uh, the same numbers. And obviously it falls off a bit uh, for Janssen, um, uh, but if you look solely at uh, the US population, the number is about 72 to 74% for efficacy. The safety for these vaccines, and this is really relevant um, because it's, uh, it's gonna be important to understand what normally happens after one gives these vaccines. Um, as those are you are already probably familiar with, you already know to tell your patients after they get their second dose of an mRNA vaccine that they're gonna probably wanna take it easy the next day because you just don't know what's gonna happen. Um, I'm gonna make a little joke at my family's expense. Um, I may wanna have my son get uh, a, a, a mRNA vaccine every night because the first night he actually went to sleep at a reasonable hour uh, and woke up after sleeping a full night refreshed 
was after getting his uh, uh, first vaccine. So um, that, don't do that. Don't do that, of course. Um, but let's just get serious here for a moment. The placebo numbers you see here are an aggregate placebo. So they're, they're, they're across different trials, uh, aggregating the placebo patients. It's not a precise, correct thing to do. So the statisticians in the audience, please don't get too mad at me. But it's just to give us an idea here that headache is a relatively common thing at baseline, yet it is increased after all of these different vaccines to um, a, a modest extent. And then there are the flu-like symptoms that occur. I'm showing you the second dose symptoms uh, with Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna compared to the Janssen vaccine. It's important here to note that you are seeing headache um, and flu-like symptoms after the uh, Janssen vaccine um, that's over uh, placebo. It's very important to note though that these usually occur with onset 12 to 24 hours after vaccination and they should be resolving within days afterwards. Now, the safety signal that we'll talk about that was seen uh, was seen from days between uh, days six uh, and 13. The original safety signal that we picked up with these vaccines was actually with the mRNA-based vaccines was uh, this issue of anaphylaxis, which has really calmed down and I think serves as a paradigm of what can happen when we take appropriate mitigation measures because we were originally having uh, these allergic reactions and they were quite scary. Um, now we know how to deal with this. We know how to ask people um, uh, about whether they've had previous uh, allergic reactions to medications and particularly to vaccines. We know to have anaphylaxis kits on site and we know not to wait till someone has full-blown anaphylaxis to start to use those management kits. And I think now we're at a rate where uh, the number of reports are down at about one and 250,000. So one of these events in about 250,000 um, and they have generally been very treatable here. So um, uh, something that I think is a success of what you can do when you uh, manage properly. I think this is, I say this as a paradigm uh, because obviously we continue to monitor um, through uh, passive systems, the VAR system and active systems uh, which include both uh, active systems by the CDC, such as the Cl Clinical Immunization Safety Assessment, and our own Sentinel BEST system. The safety signal that, we're, that was announced today was actually detected through the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Um, and it became apparent, um, really only fully apparent over the past week. Just to back up for those who may not have been following this, um, over the past number of weeks, it's been increasingly clear that the AstraZeneca vaccine has been associated with a syndrome uh, of thrombocytopenia associated with rare venous thromboembolism, either cerebral venous sinus thrombosis and or splanchnic bed thrombosis. Those, that constellation of uh, those two things together are pretty, pretty rare. Um, for all the world, they look like heparin-associated thrombocytopenia. And indeed, it looks like the uh, autoimmune response here is potentially to platelet factor four and giving heparin actually makes things worse. Uh, we have that under good authority from what happened in Europe and it's been published now, if one goes to the New England Journal, either last couple of days or look in today's uh, online, you'll see a number of publications uh, as well as what the recommendations are here for management, which include use of 
non-heparin alternative anticoagulants and potentially the administration of immune globulin. So the reason why a pause was recommended today was not, um, not just because um, we just wanted to pause this um, uh, because we felt uh, that the number of cases um, was growing out of control, but because we wanted to be able to have time to educate providers to know what to do. Um, because of the six cases, there was one death and one of the individuals received, who received heparin um, uh, clearly had complications uh, related to uh, the receipt of heparin. I can't say there could have been more than that, but for right now, I can speak to that. Um, uh, and we wanna make sure that providers know what to do. So it's also important that providers know what to do in terms of seeing people. So if you see somebody who's just received a vaccine who has mild to moderate headache and, and myalgias, typical flu-like symptoms, that's much less concerning than if you see somebody uh, 10 days later who has a very severe headache um, or who has symptoms of blood clots or symptoms of petechiae. Um, so um, there, I, I would probably say to you that um, it's really important now if you see somebody with new onset thrombocytopenia, and the thrombocytopenia here is generally pretty profound with platelet counts in the 10 to 25,000 range, or if you see somebody with a new onset blood clot, particularly in an unusual location, uh, such as cerebral um, uh, uh, venous uh, sinus thrombosis, splanchnic vein, but probably even pulmonary embolism, one is gonna probably want to check for the constellation uh, that one has, does not have uh, accompanying either blood clot or accompanying thrombocytopenia in the setting of asking the patient uh, if they have had a recent vaccination. And if the timing is right, you may want to uh, uh, obtain additional studies accordingly. So our goal here is to try to help educate people. It's also by putting this pause on to try to help ascertain whether there are additional cases that we're not aware of. We know from our European colleagues that when they kind of pause things and, and put out the word, many of these cases came out of the woodwork. And we would encourage anyone who thinks they've seen this to submit a MedWatch report uh, to uh, the VAR system uh, because it's very helpful to understand um, the extent of this. Once we understand this, we believe we'll be able to make appropriate uh, mitigating recommendations. And those will be discussed, as I noted, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will meet between, I think it's 1.30 and 4.30 or 1 and 4 o'clock tomorrow, and that can be watched online. Um, after they make their recommendations and they may decide they need a second meeting, but if they make recommendations, we at FDA will consider uh, their recommendations in the totality of all the evidence that we have about adenoviral vectored vaccines. Um, there is a lot of controversy here because obviously the vaccines are tremendously safe. Um, we are talking, uh, as Dr. Bailey noted, about six events uh, in uh, 6.85 million doses um, that have been administered. Um, but um, when you look at the narrower population of 18 to 48 year old women, um, who have had these events in the United States, and you look at how many of those um, uh, had received vaccine overall, 
one has a higher relative risk for that particular population. So we have to actually see if there are mitigation strategies that we'll need to put in place. Obviously, our ultimate goal here is to get as many people vaccinated with a safe and effective vaccine as we can and to have people have confidence. Um, but we feel that we have to take action here to make sure we do that in a, in a safe manner. So um, I'm just gonna finish up for a couple minutes and then take questions. Our, the, obviously people are worried about the COVID-19 variants. There are a variety of variants. My top line message to you uh, about these variants uh, is that all of them to date, at least in the laboratory, seem to be susceptible to the immune response by the currently deployed vaccines. Granted, some of them have a uh, somewhat greater resistance to that neutralization, um, but one of the rationales for giving both doses of the mRNA vaccines is that when you get one dose, your antibody titers are actually not very high. It's the second dose that gets the very high titers that are capable of neutralizing things like the South African variant. Um, we are planning on uh, dealing with the issue of whether these vaccines will need to be adapted. We don't know that this is gonna have to happen, but we have to be obviously cognizant that it could need to happen. Um, so what we've put forth is guidance that makes it clear and to go through a couple slides in, in a few words, we're not gonna require full-blown clinical studies in using a efficacy endpoint. There, these are gonna be immunogenicity studies in several hundred people so that we can understand that the safe to give these variant vaccines and that they give a good immune response against the new variant. And we need to understand how well they retain efficacy about the older variants that are circulating. Um, we also need to make sure that these are safe when they're given to somebody who's never been vaccinated previously, as well as when they're used as a booster to people who've already received vaccination. Those we need to make sure that a third COVID-19 vaccine doesn't cause more side effects yet again. Um, um, all, all, uh, although given the amount of time that will likely have passed, we're hoping that there's no issue there. So, um, there's been a lot of noise about things, um, and I just leave you with the fact that delaying administration of second doses, not a good idea. Single doses of two-dose vaccines, probably not a good idea, because once somebody is vaccinated, they change their behavior, and they should be, we'd like to see them protected so they don't take risk when they shouldn't. Half doses of certain vaccines, probably not a good idea. Mix and match of vaccines, probably not a good idea. Don't do those things. Um, if you don't have time to do it right, what makes you think you'll have time to do it over? And that is a little bit of the precautionary principle that we're using here. Um, there was tremendous consideration, very thoughtful dialogue that went behind this pause. Everyone knew that there was the potential that we would um, cause uh, some concern here, um, that it could cause uh, a, a hit, so to speak, to vaccine confidence. On the other hand, the larger concern was that if we made some announcement about this, did not have a pause, and in a few days collected another uh, dozen or so or 18 cases, um, including other adverse events, we would, we would really potentially be in a situation where we had not taken the right steps 
to inform providers and make sure everyone pays attention uh, to this issue. So with that, I will stop and look forward to taking questions. Thanks very much. Oh, thank you, Dr. Marks. Um, sounds like my father, if you don't have time to do it right, when are you gonna have time to do it over again? Um, we got over 150 pre-submitted questions for this webinar. So obviously we're not going to get to all of them. And those were all questions that were submitted before today. Um, so we're, I'm gonna ask some questions regarding the, the Janssen vaccine, because obviously that's top of mind. Um, and with past webinars, we received a number of questions related to vaccine distribution, um, and that's not the FDA's purview. So we will not be discussing vaccine distribution today. We know there are lots of issues with that, but this is not the place to deal with those questions. Um, so the, the purpose of the pause for the, the Janssen vaccine, what do you think a best case scenario might be for the, the pause to be lifted? And basically the purpose for the pause is really just to review the data. What types of things are they gonna be looking at? So two things will happen here. The <clears throat> advisory committee for immunization practice will, will look at the data. They may make recommendations about um, what can be done uh, to uh, make sure that people know what to report. They may say that we should warn people or tell people that if they develop certain symptoms at, after day seven, they should seek medical attention, or they could suggest um, any number of other things, uh, and um, uh, including whether certain populations um, should be, uh, uh, certain populations should avoid this vaccine. Um, they could make that recommendation as well. I don't know whether they'll go there. Um, we'll have to see. At, that will all then go to FDA. Um, and we will then look at that in the totality of the evidence that we have, because we have a, a slight advantage over um, the ACIP in certain respects, because we have um, IND files of vaccines that are adenoviral vaccines that um, I can't discuss, but we can be informed about uh, when we look at um, uh, to make sure that when we make some recommendation, it's the totality of the evidence um, uh, that uh, will inform us um, so that we can get back to uh, vaccinating. I think we're all very committed to trying to do this as quickly as possible. We know that each day that goes by um, that's something that's suboptimal. And we know that there are plenty of critics out there who said, why, it's just a couple of uh, cases, why don't you just move along? But I will tell you in the history, I, I mean, I, I'm a student of history to the extent that I know the Qatar incident very well. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Qatar incident is a terrible incident in the history of vaccines when uh, some polio vaccine that was not fully inactivated was deployed and created uh, some terrible complications. I'm aware of what happened with swine flu in 1976. Um, and there have been some others. And we don't in the United States have a lot of tolerance for friendly fire, okay? We know we are fighting a war against COVID-19. And we know that COVID-19 is a devastating foe. But we also know that when our medical countermeasures injure people, we don't have a lot of tolerance for that. And that 
tends to undermine vaccine confidence. So we simply have to do whatever we can to minimize or eliminate issues that might be considered friendly fire. I'm sorry to use that analogy, um, uh, but I think that is uh, uh, an apt one in this case. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. It's, so speaking of adenovirus vaccines, so the AstraZeneca vaccine, which of course is not available in the United States, but is in use in Europe, uh, and the Janssen vaccine uh, use um, adenovirus vectors, one chimpanzee, one human. Um, are there other adenovirus vector vaccines that have been in widespread usage in the past? Uh, and have there been similar problems uh, associated with them? There are adenoviral vector uh, vaccines that have been deployed in smaller numbers of people in different circumstances. There are also ones that have been used under investigation new drug applications. The most recent deployment of a like adenoviral vectored vaccine actually has been uh, the use of the uh, Ebola vaccine from Janssen, which uses the same vector um, as uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Now that was deployed primarily in Africa and it's in a, in a few hundred thousand individuals and it's hard to know for sure whether, they're, whether you're not seeing a safety signal there um, because of the complexity of surveillance um, in that area. So we will look obviously very carefully and that's part of what this pause is allowing us to do to look in all the nooks and crannies uh, to make sure that there's information that uh, can potentially inform us uh, and then take that into consideration as we move forward. Um, the, um, so if a patient, um, and we're already getting calls from patients about this, and um, because they follow the news and, and uh, bad news travels a lot faster than good news does, if this is indeed bad news, we don't really know yet. Um, and so what I'm hearing is, is that only Probably, well, there may be some, there were some men in the AstraZeneca cases in Europe, but there were not any men involved in ours. Um, you know, these are women of childbearing age. Do we know how many of them were on oral contraceptives or because we know that that can cause clotting as well or other things like, you know, factor five Leiden or, or uh, other, you know, clotting disorders like that? We may not know yet. So I, I can tell you one of those, which is that um, there's no clear association with the oral contraceptive because we know that about the women and, and it, there was, it's not like they were all on oral contraceptives. In fact, the minority were on oral contraceptives. So there, um, it's, uh, that does not seem to be the association. We don't know about the full hypercoagulable panel on all of these uh, individuals. Um, we, if you want to read the New England Journal, you can see what was done on some of the uh, uh, people with the, um, the, uh, the Chad Ox one vaccine. Um, and you can see that, that some might have had hypercoagulable risk factors, but it's very hard to tell because some things like factor five Leiden 
prothrombin gene mutation are pretty common in the population, then it's hard to know what that actually means here. Um, equally important may be understanding whether there is some HLA association that leads to this, um, uh, uh, this immune response, because that would actually be, uh, understanding that might be uh, uh, helpful um, uh, as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, finally, we will obviously have to continue to look at um, uh, various risk factors here uh, in conjunction with CDC and, and in order to try to understand as best we can on these vaccines. Um, the, um, uh, in terms of, you know, what questions do we ask our patients when they call in and they're concerned if they've had the Janssen vaccine. Um, we ask about headache and it's not the typical uh, mild uh, headache right after vaccine that's associated with maybe some chills and myalgias and maybe some fever. It's a much more severe headache, uh, abdominal pain, leg pain, shortness of breath, maybe stroke symptoms. Uh, uh, if the patient has those symptoms, I assume we send them to the emergency room. I, I think, you know, now I'm putting my hematologist hat on. I think I would, I would do that, right? I would say, you know, do you have little speckled spots? Okay. If you have little speckled spots on your hands and your shins, time to go to the emergency room. Um, if you're feeling short of breath, time to go to the emergency room. If I, I'm not a neurologist, but the, the neurologist that I've been around, you know, is that headache, is this like headaches you've had before, or is the quality of the headache something that you've never experienced before? And if they've never experienced a similar quality headache before, uh, it may be worthwhile if the timing is right, particularly between, you know, uh, a, a week after and that three-week window. And that's when, when we, the, these e events have generally occurred, not just in these six cases, but I, I would put it to you that the cases, these cases look very, very similar to the uh, cases with AstraZeneca. And although I can't, I, I, I can't definitively say they are absolutely the same, I think that we can, um, we can take information from the AstraZeneca vaccine cases with that adenoviral vector and use some of that to help us here. I just also wanna just make a plea don't, let's not get blinded by the fact that in Europe, it was about two women to one man. And this could just be a statistical aberration. Um, uh, dating back to, you know, the issue that, um, that if we look back now in retrospect at the clinical trial, um, and this is actually posted on our website, if you go back to the, uh, the briefing books, there was one instance of cerebral vein thrombosis with thrombocytopenia in the clinical trial. So that's one in 20,000 approximately with Janssen. And that was in a man. So I think we have to, we have to know that it, it just don't dismiss. I'm just, my plea is don't dismiss a male who says, well, I have, I got Janssen a week ago and I have a headache that's nothing like I've ever had before. And I'm not quite feeling myself. Um, that person probably should be evaluated. Um, so when <clears throat> the patient's in the hospital for our, <clears throat> excuse me, primarily physician audience out there, I, I assume that they would do the typical imaging studies if they expected some type of uh, thrombotic event. 
Um, but in terms of labs, um, I know with the AstraZeneca cases in Europe that D-dimer was elevated um, and they're recommending that, you know, a peripheral smear is obtained to make sure that, you know, all the other cells look normal, obviously platelet counts. Um, and very important to not give heparin, use other anticoagulants and consider um, uh, IVIG. Um, so is there, you know, some patients are asking, well, you know, is there anything that I can do to prevent this from happening? Um, and I'm assuming we want to say, no, just don't take aspirin. Don't do anything on your own, you know, without consulting your doctor first. I think that's the right answer. I mean, uh, the, the, the issue here is I, I, you know, the good news, and just to reiterate, this is a very, very rare event. We are doing this out of an abundance of precaution um, because our commitment to the American people was that we would make sure that we would take care of the safety of these vaccines very carefully as if we, you know, for our families, this part of our family, our larger family, um, uh, and um, we understand the need to get the country vaccinated against COVID-19, but just remember now, we have a very nice supply. Uh, it's not like we're stopping vaccination because the supply of both of the mRNA vaccines are flowing. Um, I would love it if we can get the supply of these vaccines flowing again. Behind these, we have uh, protein-based vaccines in development. That will uh, is encouraging too. We wanna get more vaccine out there, but we have to do it with the confidence uh, that people know that if they receive a vaccine, um, that their health is, is, is first and foremost in our minds. Well, it, you know, I think it's so important for everybody to remember, remember that there have been hundreds, over a hundred million doses of the mRNA vaccines given. Are we seeing any kind of new safety signals uh, with those vaccines? Wow, you, you, it's, uh, thank you for that question. It's almost like someone planted that. Uh, that's a great question. So, and uh, I didn't plan it. Um, there are 180 million doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. There were, have been three episodes of cerebral vein thrombosis reported, uh, cerebral vein sinus thrombosis reported, none of them with thrombocytopenia. We take those to be the base um, incidence of uh, cerebral vein sinus thrombosis. For those who aren't aware, this is a relatively rare clot. We see these, the, the, the rate is estimated to be two, to, so depending on who you uh, look at, two to five in a million, or there's a Dutch study that suggests it could be as high as 14 per million. Um, but you can see it's relatively rare compared to the clots that we're more used to, like DVTs and PEs. Um, so, so we're not seeing safety signal, anything new falling out with the mRNA vaccines. That's, that's very encouraging. Uh, and I think we have to remember that um, every case of hospitalized COVID infection has, um, uh, those patients have a one in five chance of having some type of significant, you know, thrombotic event. And um, so it's much more important to prevent new cases of COVID uh, in, in my opinion. Um, 
so I'll shift gears just a little bit. I'm sure you'll be happy to hear that. Um, so uh, in, in the duration of immunity, um, there was a report recently um, that for the mRNA vaccines, the, the six month um, evaluation showed excellent maintenance of immunity. Unfortunately, some people misinterpreted that to mean that it was only six months, which is not the case at all. But do we have any kind of idea uh, about how long this immunity lasts and, and um, what the current thinking is on the need for boosters? Uh, it's a great question, Dr. Bailey. I think what we know is that we're, we're believing that it's probably gonna last at least nine months, um, but we're gonna be checking this. Obviously, we need to be careful that in more immunocompromised individuals, particularly the older individuals, the oldest people who are vaccinated, that we don't see that drop off more quickly and we're, we'll be looking at that. Um, it is possible. We don't know for sure that somewhere at nine months a year, we may need to have boosters. Um, but we'll get a better sense of that probably with each month, we'll get more certainty uh, about when that might be necessary. So do you, it seems to me that a, a booster might be um, necessary as much for the emergence of new variants as it is for uh, waning immunity from the original vaccine. But I guess we'll just have to that's another, yeah. we'll have to wait it, and see it, kind of question. It may turn out though, that we're a little lucky with coronavirus. So if you're the spike protein, you are essentially a big, you got a stalk and you got a head. And the antibodies where a lot of the changing is going on is where my fingers are wiggling. Um, it, unlike influenza, where you don't have a lot of real estate where my arms are, you have more real estate. And so what we're probably seeing here with these vaccines, the reason why we're probably still getting reasonable neutralization of virus against, uh, you know, uh, with the current vaccines is because there's enough real estate that hasn't shifted uh, that it can be neutralized. Now, obviously, at some point, <laughs> things may shift enough in that stock uh, that there won't be enough real estate uh, for antibodies to neutralize. But we're lucky here that it may be that by just even, it might even be that by boosting, I'm not saying this is the case, but it may even be, be that without even shifting uh, the variant that uh, against which the booster is, is against, it may just be by boosting with the same vaccine, you'll get high enough titers that they would take care of um, these variants. And so that's something that's being looked at right now um, uh, there is something to be said for trying to keep it simple uh, because the more different types of vaccines that one has to manufacture, you, you basically take away uh, from some of the capacity you manufacture as much vaccine. Okay, let's talk about uh, post-vaccination infections. Uh, there have been enough vaccines given now and there um, is enough uh, COVID disease still um, you know, rampaging through our communities that we're starting to, to hear more reports of these. Do we have any idea what the rate of post-vaccination um, infection is? And um, it, it seems that um, these infections are very mild, if not uh, asymptomatic. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the, the best data that I've seen has have, have come out from, uh, have been some of the data from Pfizer and others have published it in, in, from other uh, series of real world evidence where it's probably somewhere on the order of eight to 10% of these breakthrough cases over this course of six months. Um, 
And you're absolutely correct. They tend to be mild cases. Um, uh, these, are not, these are not ones that put people in the hospital, but they're, they're breakthrough cases. At this point, there's a lot of sequencing going on to make sure that we try to understand. I can't report to you the outcome of that sequencing, um, but um, people are trying to understand why we're seeing these breakthroughs, um, whether it's a, a waning uh, uh, titers of immunity or whether it's something about a different variant um, in that individual. It could be either or both. Um, uh, but um, I think that that to me is a little bit reassuring here that even the breakthroughs tend to be mild. I don't wish COVID though on anyone because seeing some of the long hauler effects that we're starting to see, it would be nice to keep this uh, away. And it would be interesting to see if those who get these breakthrough infections when they are followed over time, whether they have a lower incidence of any kind of long hauler like symptoms. That will be very important information. Uh, we're now starting also to get some good information about uh, reduced transmission of uh, COVID um, after uh, immunization. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so um, through real world evidence um, and other studies that have been done, again, complementary studies, um, it, you know, it's not perfect. It's not zero, of course, but it looks like um, uh, it's, there's a 70 to 80% reduction in the ability to transmit um, asymptomatically, um, which is a really nice piece of news uh, because uh, we would like to make sure that particularly as younger people um, who can have asymptomatic uh, COVID-19, that, that once they get vaccinated, we are not transmitting uh, as much. And um, we'll probably have better and better data with that as we move along, because there are a variety of studies that will look at that uh, in the real world. Um, but it is, it is increasingly reassuring. Um, uh, and some are actually, uh, you know, the, the, the most definitive studies of looking at exactly when that kicks in um, are, are also ongoing. So we're looking at uh, expanding the populations that in which we give the vaccine. I know Pfizer has submitted its data for its um, EUA uh, in 12 to 15 year olds. Um, is, is, well, first of all, is this patient population getting a full dose or a half dose? Is it the same dose as adults? Great question. The 12 to 15 year olds, they actually were studied, actually about 100 of them were studied in the original Pfizer uh, data that was submitted, and they used a full dose. Um, uh, I, I, you know, as I, I, in that age range, um, the weights are sufficiently um, uh, high uh, then uh, that these, uh, th this was felt to be uh, very reasonable. And indeed, um, uh, is, as you may have read from Pfizer's press release, that does seem like um, uh, it was a good call. They seem to have good, at least by report, good immune responses. Um, uh, and good protection. Um, so uh, we will uh, be reviewing those data. Um, uh, it makes it relatively simple um, because we'd be able to, you know, roll out as as the as these other vaccines. They will also, I think, for all of the vaccines, not just for Pfizer, but for Moderna and then potentially Janssen, they will be planning on using in that 15 to 12 to 15 year old population the same adult doses. Um, uh, makes it reasonably simple. Um, and obviously we feel a, uh, a sense of urgency of getting through these and we'll do our best to um, 
uh, be reviewing this because we understand that kids, this gets kids, if, if we can get down to age 12, we can get junior high and high school kids um, with a good vaccination campaign back to school, hopefully in the fall. Any estimates on when we might hear about that EUA for the early adolescents? Couple of weeks. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, as, and, and I know the pediatric um, studies are, are ongoing as well. Um, so the, I know that um, the, the Pfizer, I believe, is, um, is ready to move on from EUA status to uh, actually applying for its you know, biological license to be um, approved as opposed to just an emergency authorization. Um, so the implications of you know, a vaccine you know, get being officially licensed uh, as opposed to the other ones still being under EUAs, how does that affect availability? How does that, you know, just to me, I, I would think that that would have a lot of implications in terms of you know, vaccine mandates and things like that. But um, so how long do you think that process is going to take in terms of moving from EUA to BLA? Yeah, so the best, I, I can't exactly predict because there are so many moving parts. I can tell you what are the, the statutory, what, what, what we have as our goal um, uh, in, uh, in our commitment letters uh, for, uh, for a, a vaccine like this is that we, uh, after it's accepted for filing, we uh, generally have up to six months to review it. Now, obviously we're gonna do our best to get this done faster than that, but I can't say how much faster because there are so many other moving parts here. I came in yesterday not expecting to have this week um, uh, switched around by uh, safety signals quite the way uh, that it was. Well, I was, I was here over the weekend. Yeah, uh, you, you get my drift. I, I wasn't expecting this, this program for this, for this week. So it, it, we do have to take that into account. That said, I think Dr. Bailey, your point is very well taken that once there is the most relevant thing here I don't think it's gonna make a big difference on you know, which vaccine becomes dominant because the supply is still the major issue here. But it does make the following differences. Once a vaccine is approved, um, it can, it, there is a different legal status uh, in terms of what employers can potentially require, um, uh, at least what certain employers can require. Um, and it does have a different uh, meaning for the military uh, in terms of required vaccination. So it will make a difference when there is a, uh, a biologist license application that is approved. Um, do you th think that AstraZeneca will be applying for an EUA in the United States uh, given everything that has happened and uh, given the discussions around safety signals, um, what do you think is the likelihood that it would be authorized here? Uh, you know what, that's, that's one where I can't go there. Um, uh, that's gonna be up to the company and they'll have to, you know, that's, that's probably a place that I, I really can't comment on. Um, yeah. Understand, had to ask. Um, as far as um, increasing, let's see, I've got so many questions here still to ask. Uh, lots of questions about um, immunocompromised individuals. Um, there are patients with, um, say, common variable immunodeficiency or other types of, of uh, immune deficiency. Um, 
I know that we do recommend that most of these patients get vaccinated. Um, would we, should we prefer the two dose regimen for those patients? Um, and really what's the current guidance on giving um, really any of the vaccines and immunocompromised yeah, I think for, individuals? For immunocompromised, it's really, this is, this is actually what I think is, it's, it's actually nice to be on with the AMA because we care about provider patient relations, right? And this is a great place where this is a good time for a conversation between a provider and a patient. And I think you can explain uh, that uh, perhaps the, you know, what the benefits of the two dose, the two dose regimens might be in terms of the highest titers you might uh, achieve. And, and theoretically perhaps um, explain that maybe that if, if you have a lower chance of getting a high titer anyway, because of immunocompromise, that might be helpful. Alternatively, if you have somebody that is, is your concern may not come back, uh, you might want to use a one dose of vaccine. But again, I think this is a really good conversation for a provider and patient to have, knowing that exactly as you noted, that the vaccines may not work as well in immunocompromised individuals, but they're probably better than doing nothing. I would think so. Um... I am very concerned about uh, you know, today's announcement fueling vaccine hesitancy in folks that were already um, hesitant. And it may have engendered some hesitancy in patients that weren't having much hesitancy before. Um, you know, I know that when, and I've already had some calls from patients when a patient asked me, um, you know, I remind them how, you know, the hundred and 80 million mRNA vaccines that have been given uh, with really no emerging safety signals. Um, and I just, I, I, we couldn't have made the trials longer because like you said, most of the, the reactions happen within six weeks. And certainly this, um, you know, prothrombotic thrombocytopenia that we're seeing, you know, in these patients, if it's related, is occurring within that window. Um, so a longer observation may not have made a difference. And it's just um, to have trials with millions of people in them is just, there would be so many people that died of COVID while you were waiting for that to happen. I think it would be um, uh, more than counterproductive because it, 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 we just can't forget what a frightening, frightening uh, disease this really is. So do you see this changing the shape of clinical uh, vaccine trials in the future in terms of how long we observe people and how large the, um, the trial groups are? So Dr. Bailey, it's a great question. The problem is that, you know, we, we, we could have done a trial that had 100,000 people in it and may never have seen this. It just so happens that we, you know, we saw it in, in that trial. Um, uh, so I think it's, it's just hard to, 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 to second guess like this. And that's why we have such good vaccine surveillance systems. I think the best thing we can do to make sure we engender vaccine competence is to communicate openly we are here, you know, I, we have had every, I, today I've had every epithet hurled at me on my email that we're in one company's pocket or the other company's pocket or we're against this company or because this is a nonprofit <clears throat> supposedly vaccine, we were against it or this and that. No, we're, we're here because 
the people who work at FDA, everyone comes to work every day because we care whether it's or goes to their basement to work every day um, uh, because we care about America's health deeply. And this is not something we undertook like lightly because we really wanted to make sure though that people feel confident that when we say later in the week that we've come up with some solution that they know that we've taken their best interest to heart um, uh, and uh, that we have something in place um, that is going to mitigate against this. So that's our commitment here. Um, I share, Dr. Bailey, I, I share your pain about this um, because it's one, it's pain that we all felt, um, uh, but um, it's one of those things where you have to weigh doing nothing versus doing something um, uh, and then uh, making sure that we explain well why we did it. Um, uh, we explain, I mean, it's a great opportunity to explain that 180 million doses of a vaccine given with remarkably few, you know, I mean, this is remarkably few um, uh, serious adverse events. Um, you know, yes, we can say that there are these flu-like symptoms, but by and large, um, you know, in terms of serious things, it's pretty, pretty wonderful rollout. So I think overall, we should be very confident that the systems are working. Um, uh, and uh, the fact that they're picking up rare adverse events is, is actually the right thing. That's what they were designed to do and now we just have to deal with them. I think we have to keep everything in perspective and realize that yes, that this is a sign that the system is working, not that the system uh, is not working. Uh, and uh, encourage um, everyone, if they suspect adverse events, to report it uh, to VAERS, to the CDC. Um, MedWatch, it's incredibly important to get this data. So thanks again to Dr. Marks for his time and his insights into the, the Janssen vaccine. I know this has been a very busy day for you and everybody at the FDA. Uh, and thank you to all of you for joining us today and for all of your great questions. We'll be in touch with the dates and times for future physician webinars. If you're interested in sending this webinar to a friend or colleague or watching past episodes, this What Physicians Need to Know web series is available for free on our website at ama-assn.org backslash COVID-19-webinars, or just visit our main page and search for COVID-19 webinars. Thanks again. We hope you will join us next time. Have a good day. <laughs>